Hello, and welcome to Supply Chain Next. I'm your host, Richard Donaldson. Join me as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges practitioners face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. Okay, and welcome to the next episode of Supply Chain Next. Uh, I'm Richard Donaldson, and I'm super excited today to have Roberto Reichard on the program. Hey, Roberto. Hello, Richard. Good to hey. be here. Great, great to have you. And, uh, you know, this is our, uh, I guess, uh, sort of a milestone 25th episode. So you are coming in at a, at a oh, cool time. And so you also me. are also coming in, I think, with a topic that is so timely around uh, um, retained carbon and, you know, how that is kind of a piece of the overall kind of, you know, circularity, sustainability puzzle, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, you've had a fascinating career that we're going to get into uh, spanning a few decades uh, and a couple big behemoth companies uh, with uh, uh, Bechtel uh, and and uh, then all of a sudden BP. And, you know, I think it's a very interesting um, question because I think you, if I'm going to put it this way, and it's going to launch into the, the sort of start of your career, but you have an interesting, as an individual, you have an interesting parallel as an individual coming out of your career and then landing and focusing on retained carbon as a piece of sustainability as a reflection of the overall industry, right? Because the industry itself is kind of following what you are doing as an individual to some extent, you know, and I kind of look at your old or new CEO uh, from your former company, BP Bernard, you know, he's championing the whole conversion of the company from a, from a you know, a, a raw natural resources into a sustainability energy focused right. kind of company. So I think it's just a, it's just a really interesting topic. So let me, let me pause there. We don't want to hear me. Okay. I want to talk about you and kind of just, you know, very first question, you know, kind of a little bit of who you are and, and, and tell us about your journey through, through your career and how you got to where you are. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I'm an engineer by, by training. I I graduated as, a, as an industrial uh, engineer uh, from the University of Nottingham in, in, in the United Kingdom. Uh, and I was, as I was looking for, you know, where to get a job, you know, I was sort of priority one after graduation. The, the industry that actually presented the better opportunities, <laughs> pay, travel, interesting work was actually the, the energy business. So I signed up with a company called Schlumberger they provide oil field services around the world. Uh, and I got the opportunity uh, to work with them in, in, in Turkey, in Egypt, in Venezuela. After uh, five or six years of that, I decided to go back, back to school since I was in the oil industry and get, a, get, a, get some more grounding in, in that business. So I, I took a, a master's in science from, from Imperial College in London. Uh, uh, and after that, uh, that's where I met my, my future wife. We decided, you know, why don't we go back to the States for a while? And of course, we chose to go to San Francisco. And, and I, uh, in San Francisco, I joined Bechtel in their upstream energy uh, team. And really spent a long time with Bechtel doing uh, large projects, uh, from studies all the way to large projects, and again, all around the world. Uh, you know, including Mexico, Thailand, India, uh, Egypt, Turkey again, uh, and a fabulous career, some very large, interesting projects, uh, 
my I was finishing up a, a project that I was leading for them in India, doing the first uh, deep sea offshore gas development in the Bay of Bengal for a company called Reliance, one of the biggest uh, Indian companies owned by one of the richest men in the, in the world. And uh, really looking to see what, what to do next. And, uh, and I was uh, recruited by BP. Uh, and so I thought, well, that'd be a good change. It's always good for, for one's brain to go learn something new, see an industry from, from a totally different perspective Right, as opposed to as from the contractor side, I was uh, going to go see it from the from the owner side. Uh, but again, so I joined the BP's uh, major projects group in uh, 2009, uh, and with them, I uh, I went to Alaska. I was a vice president of projects in Alaska, so I never never had seen the Arctic, but learned how to how to do major projects in the Arctic. That's a uh, quite unique and unusual very modularized environment as much as possible gets built off-site and then transported uh, uh, up, to, up to up to the Arctic site either on land or, or the bigger ones on in large uh, barges. Uh, I also did some work for BP in the Gulf of Mexico on uh, taking care of some of their of the projects on the existing platforms uh, and then I also was a vice president for projects in Southeast Asia. So looking after all our major projects in that region, the, the biggest one of those was uh, an LNG development in Indonesia in the island of uh, Papua, uh, very remote, uh, very socially and environmentally sensitive location. Uh, we were developing uh, a, a train of LNG in really sort of pristine area. Really got me to thinking about you know what what I was doing uh, and the impact that we were having on 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 the local population. And all although BP is actually a, a very sort of sensitive company in that area, very careful on how we do things. It's nevertheless sort of impossible not to to have an impact. But you know, we went to the extreme of, for example, we although the the location is very very remote, we never built an airport or a road to the location because we knew that that would attract an influx of other people and all the other things that come along with people coming into a sort of a pristine area. So in fact, to get to the area it will take a, a whole day. It will take a, a plane ride, uh, then another smaller plane ride. And then a couple of hour, hours by boat, but we actually did that on purpose, right, to maintain the remoteness and, and minimize the impact to the area. BP uh, then asked me to to come back to to the states and be their vice president of uh, project management for for upstream. So essentially, project management for all of our all of their uh, major upstream projects. And a major project is anything where where BP has an equity of uh, $250 million uh, at least, right? So there were multi-billion dollar projects. Did that for a couple of years, but was still feeling that really I wasn't having the impact uh, in the world that I wanted to have. Uh, 
and decided that the, the, the best thing to do was to step away and see if I can actually use my major project skills in something a little bit uh, more sustainable and, uh, and greener for the world. So that's where I am now. I've, I've joined uh, Zero Emissions Advisors, you know, a consulting advisory firm in the, in the, in the new energy field and, and sort of putting really my energy to, to bring forth a, a greener, more sustainable world. So, I mean, I, I, again, just an amazing exposure to you know, what a lot of people in this world just don't even understand is to go from, you know, uh, Schlumberger, I didn't even know that in your CV, to Bechtel, yeah. to BP. I mean, these are you know, three of the biggest companies in the world doing the biggest projects. I was going to also ask you when you're doing major projects at BP, you know, just on average, how many per year were you looking at? You know, dozens? I mean, they're, it's not well, trivial, the amount of projects that are right, going right, on. Right. So when, when you're leading a major project, it's actually, you know, many years per project. Right. Right. Now, in, in, in my last role as a vice president in project management, or even my role in, in Southeast Asia, I had multiple projects going on under me. Right. You know, uh, in, in, uh, in Southeast Asia, it was maybe four or five wow. in, in the billion dollar sort of range, not all of which were operated by BP. Some were operated by, by other companies, but since we were equity partners, we had a, an oversight role in those. Mm -hmm. uh, now in the role as a vice president of, of global project, project management, then that was you know, dozens and dozens of, of projects that we had to uh, oversee. Mm -hmm. Part of what I did in that role is, is, is uh, review project readiness to go through, their, uh, through the gate process. So essentially got to see and, and, and review and help uh, projects around the world, projects of all sorts, you know, uh, onshore, offshore, uh, Arctic, subsea, etc. Right, and and throughout all of that, and the common theme that seems to come out is this experience you had, uh, you know, on this particular project that you highlighted, where you really began to start to consciously think about the impact on the environment. Right. So, on the one hand, we still need energy to run the world. But on the other hand, we're waking up through our own awareness or experience or whatever to, you know, there's got to be a better way to cohabitate, you know, uh, <laughs> a planet like ours and not be as destructive as it were. And you already mentioned some things that are really cool about even a project where you consciously chose to make it, you know, inaccessible to everybody else to maintain the environment that you were in. But I was going to ask you, that also happened to coincide about the time that Bernard was coming in at BP, I think, right? So, I mean, you simultaneously and internal to BP are having this sort of, I don't want to call it epiphany, awakening, whatever you want to call this around, well, you know, is there a better way than just yanking oil or LNG out of the ground? You know, how do we, how do we, how do we still maintain delivering energy, but not have as much of an impact on the environment in a negative way. So you were having this as an individual, Bernard's coming in as a company because of all the things that they were going through and the industry's going through. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what's, I mean, you know, it just seems like there's all of a sudden this consciousness awareness that was going on and you were living it, you know, as a part of that. Was it happening just spontaneously or other forces, you know, kind of driving you in this direction? Was it 30 years of kind of doing what you did and all of a sudden going, hey, there's gotta be a better way to do this or you know, like, like, can you, 
can, what, what, what caused that? What was the catalyst behind that? Both for yourself and maybe the company and industry as a, as a, as a community or at large. Well, you know, I joined BP a year before the, the incident in the, in the Gulf of Mexico. And, and that was a big, impactful event for the company. A lot of uh, uh, internal examination of what had gone wrong, how could that have happened? Really a, a, a laser-like focus from then on, on safety and operational uh, readiness, operational uh, safety, process safety, uh, personal safety as well. And thinking about you know what what sort of company was BP, the company actually became considerably smaller as a as a result of that, you know, and it had to pay uh, uh, or agreed to pay enormous uh, amounts of money to 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 the U.S. government. Uh, but really, sort of a, a lot of of contemplation within the company about its role in the world. Now that was, you know, in 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 the early teens, there was a new. Uh, uh, CEO that came in as well as, as, a, as a result of that first American CEO for for BP and, and I knew Bernard Looney from 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 those days uh, at that time he was a head of drilling so he's a driller by background uh, and he of course he was already on the track to be one of the leaders of the company and, and when you met him you know he stood out as a, as a very thoughtful uh, person but also with some very modern ideas. I think part of what drove, drove and drives companies like BP to make the change that they now have to make uh, to become more sustainable is the people in the company. You know, people like myself, certainly a lot of the younger people as well, they, they don't want to waste or not waste but put their their lives efforts into something that they don't see as uh, helping others or helping the world or even worse right making making things uh, harder dirtier for people so the impetus is really i think coming from the people as well as external factors now more and more right uh, financing institutions uh, banks customers are wanting to for uh, for their suppliers and their uh, their investments to be cleaner. You know, everybody I think is recognizing mm -hmm. that uh, that the world's uh, carbon budget is finite, and that we've taken a very very significant uh, chunk of uh, of it already, and now we have to do something to limit how we use uh, the world's resources. Fair enough. And I, and, and that sort of leads right into, let's talk about how you are approaching that. You know, we, you and I have talked previously about retained carbon as sort of a key element to measure and track. And, you know, that's, that's sort of a, an emerging potential KPI um, that will help drive people's awareness and then ultimately, you know, drive people collectively to more sustainable, sustainable uh, objectives, right. Or outcomes. However, you know, we've been talking about sustainability and environmental impact and all that stuff for a while. We had the carbon credits market, and I don't know, that sort of was hot 10, 12 years ago. I don't know if people are still talking about that. Retained carbon is, is a certainly one measure of um, uh, um, the impact we have on the environment, right, and, and, and avoiding that. Um, 
but how, how did you get to where you are now? And then the real specifically, how are we making it real now? Cause we've had so many conversations about sustainability and everything that what's, 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 what's making it real now for you, both in your professional practice, now that you're doing consulting, like, how do you make it real for companies versus just, you know, idle chit chat, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, like, let's make it practical. What, what, what really is actually making sense and actually having a direct impact? Right. Well, let me start by the end. And I think uh, looking at a company's uh, or, uh, uh, embodied carbon or the embodied carbon of their products can be currently a, a competitive advantage. Okay. So I, let's put that there. But I, I, you know, when I was doing projects, we would, we would certainly look at uh, trying to make a project uh, the most energy efficient once it was in operation, right? Because of course that lowers your cost and, uh, and has all sorts of other benefits. We, we would always focus on that. How can we consume less fuel or less uh, consumables or, or recycle the heat so we don't waste it, et cetera, et cetera. After I left uh, BP and I started reading and, and really looking around as to where I thought there might be uh, the potential to make an impact, I came across a concept, uh, the concept of embodied or retained carbon which is essentially the carbon in, 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 in the materials, the carbon that is consumed or, or used in the extraction and the manufacture of materials. And, and this is, that is a significant amount. So for example, in a, in a building, in an office building, up to about 40% of the carbon uh, consumed by that office building in its life cycle is the embodied carbon. So it's, it's, it's a huge number that really wasn't tackled until, until recently. The, the movement for, for embodied carbon began in the, in the civil industry, right? Uh, buildings, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. They're the people, I think, that started looking at this and have actually pushed that concept uh, forward the most to the point that is actually, I think, pretty widely used in, 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 in many locations around the world. And it's becoming a regulatory policy in, in, in locations around the world as well. So, so what I'm trying to look at is how can we bring the progress that the civil industry, the buildings and infrastructure industry has made to more to the rest of the industrial uh, plant of the world, and and also working with colleagues who are doing major projects, to to bring that forth to their thinking when they're thinking of the concept of a project. Okay, I think eventually that that's going to reflect on the procurement choices that people make, mm -hmm. uh, favoring lower embodied carbon products over higher embodied carbon products. Well, let me let me double click on that for a second because I think this is where one, you're an expert in the space. So some people who are listening might not understand what the definition of embodied carbon is. So that's one question. But the question mm -hmm. I want to ask before that though is of all, I'll call it the natural uh, gases or things to focus on, you know, why carbon versus say methane? Or why carbon versus, say, 
oh, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, natural gas depletion or something like that. I mean, I'm trying to think of like, what, what is it about? Because we all talk about carbon and I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I don't think people, you know, we've heard it so much, but why that versus something else? Like, what is it about the retained carbon measurement and measuring that allows you to really have an effect positively on sustainability? So the focus on carbon, I think, is because it's ubiquitous, right? Versus methane, methane is also a very powerful greenhouse gas, but it's not present in every in every process. Fair enough. Well, carbon pretty much is, uh, but 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 you're right. Carbon is just one of the components of the global warming potential of of a particular material or product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and one way to quantify that global warming potential or your embodied uh, carbon is through a, a document called an environmental uh, product declaration, okay. which is a way to actually measure and transparently display what the or environmental impact of a particular product is. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and, oh, sorry, I was gonna jump in on that one too, because you, you measure, so let me tie that back to a statement you made earlier. So if I look at a, a building today as an example, and you make the yeah. statement that 40% of the embodied carbon is in the material or something like that. Well, the logical question is what's the other 60%, yeah. right? And what do we kind of say, what, what does it mean to be a hundred percent? Like, let's just yeah. kind of start like help people to understand yeah. a little bit of the methodology right. around the measurements and why these metrics are important. Yeah. And then how do we reduce them and what's the direct impact on the environment? I think people would really under, you know, benefit from that. So the statement was uh, 40% of the carbon in the life cycle of a building is embodied in the materials. Mm-hmm. The other 60%, a lot of it is the operational carbon, what it takes to run the building, the heating, the lights, etc. There's also some carbon release at the end of life. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the whole cycle of, of a building, from extracting the ore to make the steel, to take the steel to the site, to erect the building, then to operate the building and eventually somehow uh, come to the end of his life, either dismantle or decommission or whatever. If you look at that whole life cycle, 40% of the carbon is in the extract and make a part of the building, extract the raw materials and make, make the product. That's 40% wow. of the carbon. Wow. Wow. So it's huge, it's significant. And you can, Right now in the civil industry, they can actually take that amount down by 10, 12% for no cost, just by careful choice of design and choice of materials. Now they're doing that in, 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 the, in, in, in the building and infrastructure uh, industry. And, and worldwide, worldwide emissions, about 39% of those are, are due to buildings and infrastructure. So it's a huge area that, that's being tackled. Mm-hmm. But there's also a huge area that hasn't really caught on to embodied carbon yet, right? And that's, that's the sort of the more industrial area. Mm-hmm. And I think the next step is not only to look at, at, at the embodied carbon of individual materials. So right now in, in the civil industry, they're looking at embodied carbon in steel or in cement or, or aluminum. But what about if you look to, a, to an industrial plant, what about the carbon that's embodied 
in a in a more complex engineered piece of equipment in, mm -hmm. in a pump mm -hmm. or a compressor which which has you know dozens and dozens of parts sourced from many many different places what is a carbon in that and and you can imagine that's a much harder uh, uh, amount to calculate because you're sourcing from dozens and dozens of places around the world mm -hmm. and different types of materials combined to make a product so i think that will be the evolution eventually of, of, of this move. But uh, I think first we have to make it more widespread and take it outside the, the civil industry to, to other industries. So, so how are you doing that now? I mean, that's kind of what you've, you know, in this phase of your career and journey is this is what you're doing. So how are you, you're, I'm assuming you're kind of going back to your, I mean, Schlumberger and Bechtel, I would sort of put more in the general construction bp obviously is in the energy sector but you know they all work very similar stuff how are you bringing these concepts back to companies how are you engaging companies to work with them to start this process and start these programs right so one thing i'm doing is i'm going back and having conversations with my colleagues at, at bp uh, a colleague who who was a vice president uh, for project concepts because that's you know, at the beginning of a project, when it's still a concept, is where you can have the the greatest impact. Right. You know, the more it gets defined, the harder it is to to change right. change the project, uh, and bringing this 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 concern to them, and 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 showing them how they can actually reduce the carbon or the global warming impact of a project just by careful choice of materials uh, and products. And and. We're having discussions about doing this the way the industry uh, uh, helped suppliers on safety and on, on quality. Okay. Essentially, safety and quality both became key uh, buying factors for, for, for contractors or for materials and equipment to the point that we would uh, select one contractor over the other solely based on their safety performance. We can take a similar approach with the, the environmental impact of the products that we're buying, right? And it's not, it's not a stick approach, it's more of a, of a carrot, mm -hmm. right? And work with the suppliers like we did in safety. We worked with them to improve their safety programs, their safety trainings, their safety culture inside the house. The plan is to do the same with suppliers based on 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 the environmental performance of their of their of their products or of their services, mm -hmm. and, and and from from sort of the owner side, you just make sure that you you have a policy that encourages uh, the environmental impact of a product to be one of the key uh, factors in deciding what product you're going to buy or what service you you're going to choose. So that's one approach I'm taking for, for to try to bring this idea uh, out of the civil industry and into the into the rest of the industrial world. Well, it makes a lot of sense, and and like anything else, it, you know, a lot of this is driven by economics, obviously, right? Um, yes. You know, profitability, margin, and stuff like that. We're going to come back to that in a second because you know, so many things are nice to haves, but <laughs> until it affects the bottom line, um, you know, you don't see a lot of movement uh, in, in in most enterprise in most industries for that matter. But where I wanted to go for a second is back to um, kind of what 
you know, again, the experiences that you have and how you're kind of building companies here, but let's talk to the suppliers for a second, because I think that's a, that's a fascinating, you know, there's going to be some pressure on suppliers to not only be, you know, ethically, uh, morally sourcing, right? So we're dealing with, you know, in other areas, you know, you don't want to see child labor, you know, being exactly. uh, uh, exploited, um, you don't want unethical business practices and the people that you're working with, i.e. they're corrupt, bribery, you know, whatever, trading with bad partners. But then we get into sustainability. So how how would you speak to suppliers in starting their own? Like, you know, how do you even begin the I want to work with BP. I want to work with Chevron. I'm a new supplier. I want to get qualified. There's this new qualification that's coming up. You know, besides my financial health, besides my you know uh, uh, legal and, and 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 delivery schedule health and and whatever, it's this it's this sort of sustainability health. Like, how do you get them started on that? How do you advise these suppliers to even begin that to start to work with a BP or a Chevron or something like that? Right. Well, the idea is that you want uh, your your suppliers to have the same or a common ethos. Mm-hmm. You want to be working with companies that share your perspective as much as possible and you want to help them get to get get to that point where they actually share your perspective so i think there has there is a has to be customer pool so in uh and you know uh for for a customer like bp or or any any customer on, on average the the emissions of the upstream supply chain right of, of all its suppliers can be on the average, I think is five and a half to six times the company's own emissions, right? So your, those are called the scope three emissions, right? Those mm-hmm. scope three emissions are a rich, rich uh, area for becoming more sustainable. Mm-hmm. If you can influence something that is five or six times the size of your, your pot, obviously, you know, that, that, that's a very good target. Uh, you have to show the suppliers that having products that are uh, have low global warming potential, low embodied carbon, is a competitive advantage. So they will see that they will be selected because of that. But also to get to the point where they can show you what their uh, Global warming potential is, or or or, or the embodied carbon of the products. They have to do some work. They have to try to analyze what it is, right, and figure it out. In doing that work, they will actually uh, see inefficiencies in their process and areas where they can actually improve uh, and become uh, greener at the same time. Because they will be forced to analyze their own supply chain. Mm-hmm. Right and 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 find the areas where they're so that's that also is an an incentive for them, and of course I think suppliers will also be uh, subject to the same pressures as somebody like BP is. Their employees are also going to want to be good world citizens and want to work for a company that is doing its bit uh, to 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 help help uh, lower our, our our emissions, for example. Mm-hmm. I think those those same pressures that work in, in, on, a, on the client company will work on the supplier company. And then the, of course, the, the client company, the buyer has the ability to incentivize a supplier, mm-hmm. right? And, 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 and potentially provide premiums for lower, for lower uh, impact products, or even 
fund some programs within the supplier to to have them improve their 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 uh, sustainability performance in the in in the oil and gas industry we did that with some of our contractors to help them improve their safety performance or their quality mm -hmm. performance right mm -hmm. so i think they're very there there are tools and it can be done and i think it's a matter of time just uh, before this this gets uh widespread well let me let me ask a because uh, you know Number of different things in there. However, you know, three of three or four of those are a little bit more qualitative, which is totally fine, right? Which is, you know, you want to kind of line yourself up as a buyer. You're going to line yourself up with people who are kind of psychologically in the same mindset, right? So that's sort of a qualitative. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a, and but fair, absolutely. And then you get to you know a little bit. The company has to change within, and they might. But where I think things start to get a little bit more. Um, I don't say compelling, but economically compelling, since that's usually what, what drives a lot of people, is that you have the chance to win more business, right? That seems to me where the quantitative value can be expressed that, you know, as and I'm just using BP as examples when we're talking about it, you know, BP purchased, I'm just making numbers up uh, based on industry, you know, $200 billion worth of stuff last year, right? Of that $200 billion, you know, 2%, you know, were from or I'm 5%, 10%, 20% kind of came from low sustained or retained carbon, you know, kind of manufacturers or suppliers. And we're going to 30%, you know, or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So is there, a, is there a means with the buyers to start publishing data in a more transparent way, like give the suppliers even more economic incentive to make these choices you know, oftentimes cost them a little bit extra money right in the short term, but in the long term, to your point, are going to pay off huge dividends. But they need to see that numerically. You know, I mean, we're, we're to, to put my cynic hat on, businesses don't move very quickly unless there's a dollar figure sitting in front of them. Yeah. Or or a regulation. Well, true. Okay, fair and fair. Right. <laughs> that's that's so, yeah. So, so when, when, when you're looking at a supplier or a contractor for a, for a project, you can incentivize them. Well, if you're a private company, you don't have to buy the lowest cost. Right. right. If you're you know, a government entity doing public procurement, you probably do. But if you're a private company, you don't necessarily have to buy the lowest cost. So you evaluate the products, the contractors on, on other issues, and, and you tell them uh, upfront what the evaluation criteria is. So for example, we used to weight safety very, very heavily. Their safety sure. performance, their safety sure. record, their sure. quality performance. They had to be certified, you know, ISO 9000 certified or whatever, that sort of thing. So that's the way you incentivize it and you make it part of the bottom line. You may be the low cost supplier, but if you're getting there because of child labor or because, you know, you're burning coal with no, with no mm -hmm. compunction, well, mm -hmm. we probably won't select you. Right. Exactly. Now, the issue is currently suppliers don't know what their uh, impact is yes. because they haven't been asked to measure it. Right? So that's, that's the first step, right? We have to help them uh, get to the point where they can measure and, and develop what, what I mentioned before, these uh, environmental product declarations for their product that really set mm -hmm. out the the impact of, of, of each uh, material or product. 
So I think that's that's one way. And of course, the other way is policy. So more and more uh, authorities in, in different countries and different states are now making the carbon impact of a product uh, a, a key buying uh, choice decision. Uh, for example, here in Marin, where, where I'm living at the moment in Marin, California, there's now a, a, a requirement for the embodied carbon of uh, cement for okay. buildings, you know, for commercial buildings or buildings of a, of a, of a certain size. The, the, the General Services uh, Administration in California has also now come up with requirements for embodied carbon for, for steel. And they will become effective uh, pretty soon. Uh, in European countries, Finland, for example, there's also now policy requirements. In Canada, right, cities like, like Vancouver, mm -hmm. they are they you know they have uh, policies and regulations now that will drive suppliers to take a look at what uh, what their products are and, and see how they can make them uh, cleaner to meet the meet meet the regulatory uh, policies. So that's the other way to drive drive the industry. It's probably not not the preferred, not the most efficient. Obviously, you know, in, in our in our in our capitalist system, I think uh, money talks, but with regulation is or or actually protections mm -hmm. rather than regulations, it's a, it's a way of, of of making public money talk. Sure, sure. Well, let me let me dive into that for a second too. So, and you mentioned Marin, and now you know, as a supplier, I'll just take the example of cement. I'm a cement manufacturer. Yeah. I want to participate in the upcoming, you know, build out of the Marin City Hall, whatever. Right. And Marin says, okay, well, we need to see what your retained carbon calculations are for your cement. Right. How do they start? How do they how do they provide that number? Is there a framework? Is there a consultancy? Is that something you do? You know, what's the ISO certification for my retained carbon calculation? Right. So, so there are various international bodies that would certify your, your calculations. You start with, that, with, with this environmental product declaration, which is a, a, you know, a pamphlet four or five pages long that gives all the details of your product, how it's manufactured, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you have to do that. And that's mm -hmm. a process. Mm -hmm. and, there's, and there's a framework la laid out as to how you do it and what you include and what you don't include okay. your product. You can hire a consultancy to do that for you. It'll cost ten to thirty thousand dollars per product, okay. or you can learn how to do that in house, mm -hmm. right? And 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 do that in house. Once you have the uh, so so that's that essentially you end up with these EDPs that are certified by a third party saying yeah that is correct. That's the the environmental impact of this particular product, and that's what what the regula uh, re uh, regulators uh, call for. Mm -hmm. What they've done, like in, 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 in California, they've taken an average of the car for steel, for example, they've taken an average of the, of the carbon impact of the current uh, uh, set of products out there. And then said that, okay, you have, right, so right now at the moment is re relatively simple. They made the, the rule, the current average. Okay. And periodically, every few years, they're going to be lowering that that uh, carbon uh, impact average down to make sure that the products that they're buying are increasingly uh, more and more sustainable. Gotcha. And is that, 
So, okay, perfect. So there's, you know, there's, there is a framework, right? So, and the reason I'm asking these questions too is, you know, there's a lot of suppliers that tune into these things and, you know, there isn't, there isn't a step-by-step -step guide. Is that, is that pamphlet in the, that framework? Is that like a UN originated kind of thing? Or is there a, you know, a separate international organization that's known for carbon calculations? There, well, there, there are many consultancies and groups that, that right. do this. Uh, there are uh, international bodies that then that have set out what the standard is to do this. There's an okay. ISO standard, International Standards Organization standards. There's a European uh, standard, which is obviously very similar to the ISO. Right. And as I say, there are consultancies that will do this. Okay. Right. Uh, and and then there, as part of as part of the the EDP, there's a life cycle assessment. Mm -hmm. Right. That then looks at. Uh, uh, the embodied carbon of the whole life cycle of the product through through reuse, and there's also methodologies that that, that do that. The University of Washington has a, a free tool. It's called the EC3 calculator. Okay. And they have a free database. So if you're a designer, uh -huh. you can actually go to their database and and see the the environmental product declarations of, of thousands of of building products. Oh, cool. And make a choice based on that. So, so the so databases exist for the for the environmental product declarations, and free tools exist to actually do the life cycle assessment of your. Of so your I'm going to be a little geeked out because this is my head starts to get geeky uh, pretty quick. It's <laughs> often happens mm -hmm. when you start saying that. So if I were to do a query on this database, yeah, with the query of I'm looking for cement suppliers who do X when it comes to retained carbon, what is that that I'm querying? Is it, I hit a certain threshold or the retained carbon is 10%? I mean, what, how, how do you frame that query? It's, it's, it's largely a comparison. So if, okay. if you're a designer and you need cement with certain uh, specs, certain compressive strength or, or uh, composition, whatever, you first sort by that. Sure. And then you'll get a list of the of the products that meet your specification, and within that list, you'll be able to evaluate their their embodied carbon, their, and right. So you you can choose to make a your your procurement choice based on that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And would that embodied carbon represent? Would that be a number? I, I guess I just have never seen it, so I don't know. Is it like yeah, a? It, it, it's a number of a CO two equivalent per per unit. Got it. And the unit is either kilograms or, or cubic meters, right? Depending Got it. On, on what you're looking at. Got it. I see. I see. Okay, cool, cool. So now, now, well, now let's, we've gotten into the very, the weeds and the details. Yeah. Now let's flip back to sort of where you are now looking forward. How are you, like, how are you specifically kind of, you know, tuning what you do in your consulting practice uh, to help companies make this move? And then secondly, you know, how do you see this playing out over the next three, four, five years, right? I mean, it, it sounds like, and I, I, I tend to agree, you know, that this is going to become just sort of part and parcel of how you buy stuff, right? Um, okay. It's going to become more transparent around the retained carbon uh, calculations in suppliers and, and even the owner operators of what they're doing. Like that's going to become, and, and I'll give you an example. In my former life, when I was doing data centers, we had a metric called PUE, uh, or Power Utilization Effectiveness, right? It's an it's a industry now recognized KPI, but we invented that at the time. Like there was no you know, miles per gallon for data centers. That became the standard. 
that all of a sudden drove more efficiency. You know, once that became, you know, people started then comparing PUEs against each other. Right. And that's, that's what started that competition started driving more and more efficiency in. Right. And I would assume it's like miles per gallon or, th- you know, once there's a number and people can kind of latch onto that, then you start right. to see a pretty big hockey stick effect. Right. Um, so looking forward, is that something you see coming? Do you know what that is? You know, how, how does this play out the next three, five years? Well, I, I, th- I think the, the, the same way that, that uh, probably happened in, in, in the data industry, it becomes a, a customer pool. Right. I, I, you probably didn't have a policy requirement in, 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 in that industry, but it's also going to become, a, 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 you know, a, a regulatory requirement. Yep. So you're going to have to meet the minimum threshold of whatever the regulation is before you can supply it to, I guess, public projects. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it may, it, that, that regulation may encompass all projects. Who, mm-hmm. who knows? And then there's competition is going to drive you to, to try to be able to tell your buyers, look, we're the greenest supplier of cement or, or this particular material. And we can do it at, at, at the same or lower price of our competition. Or maybe it's only a little bit more, you know, and, and, and the buyer is, is, is cool with paying the, the premium. Right. Uh, and more and more, as, 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 as companies realize that their emissions, their upstream and the, of their supply chain are five to six times the size of their own emissions, they're going to focus on that mm-hmm. uh, area, as, as, as we discussed uh, earlier. So I think there's going to be both, both a pull uh, from, from the buyers and, 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 and a, regulatory, a growing regulatory uh, requirement to meet to meet these uh, these minimums. Well, the one thing I would say, having gone through the other side of this is one of the reasons as an industry, we decided to create PUE and drive that, right? Is we wanted to stay ahead of regulation, right? So our own internal <laughs> conversation was, right. if regulation comes in, then we're subject to people who aren't even from the industry creating you know numbers and objectives that don't make sense, right? right. So we sort of try to stay ahead of it. Now, I'm going to come back from another different switch topics a little bit here, but you know, another example in the outside world um, that I think you may see more of, and I don't know if you've seen this yet, but John, uh, the CEO of Nike guy named John Donahoe used to be the CEO at eBay and and did an interim step at at a company called service now, but interesting. He's running Nike because that really a couple things in there. One, you got a technology guy who's kind of transforming a retail, you know, sportswear company into more of a technology company. But he just announced the other day that part of his executive compensation packages for all executives is going to be something affiliated with sustainability. I don't know what that is, but right there, boom, now you got the C-suite all financially incented to achieve sustainable metrics. I think that's going to start having a huge impact on this thing taking shape right in the world that this be making it more real you know are you seeing other things like that i mean regulation obviously but you know more more specific things within companies that are happening now that you see uh triggering this to be more front and center yeah i think that's more and more widespread uh for senior executives and uh to to be rewarded partly on on sustainability targets on emission targets even when when i was in bp uh we were we had uh, goals around uh, uh, methane emissions and reductions year and year reductions in methane emissions that uh, impacted our, our annual performance uh, mm-hmm. 
-hmm. and reward. So, so that's been, I think, growing now for several years and it's becoming more and more and more. And then again, from the other side, uh, you know, financial institutions are going to be incentivizing that as well through where they, they make their investments, who they approve for loans, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think it's, it'll be coming from, from all sides, really. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, I think it's inevitable. What about, and let me, let me get in, we've got, a, we've got a few minutes left, so I want to be conscious of time, you know, but kind of, you know, getting into a little bit of the prognostic side of things, right? Like, what do you, what do you see, you know, there's the concept, but, you know, are there technologies or, I mean, again, philosophies, of course, are changing, people's attitudes are changing, education is also kind of bringing awareness to this whole thing. Like you said, the younger generation has been taught, you know, from sort of the you know, the cradle to really think more environmentally and they're, they're making decision, buying decisions based on that. Right. They make decisions based on where they work, you know, on what the kind of internal ethos is of these companies, you know, are they doing the right thing for the right people? Um, what are the things are you seeing that are kind of triggering more? I mean, and then there's the obvious, which is just the aggregate number of human beings is growing at a rate that, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty massive. We have to do something uh, to really address this, right? But what, what, you know, in the space of technology, anything from the technological point of view or, or, or other, you know, that is really going to, you know, have, has some pretty profound effects over the next three to four to five years that you see coming. Well, you know, if, if you, if you uh, look at uh, Bill Gates' new book, how to yep. avoid a, a climate disaster. I guess one of the one of the things he points out is that things like uh, wind and solar energy are already very competitive mm -hmm. with with uh, fossil fuels, or some uh, a lot of times even even uh, uh, more cost effective. Sure. However, there are a lot of uh, major in, industrial processes that are not yet competitive uh, as, as a green green process. Mm -hmm. And that we actually, the technology should be focused on, on what he calls the green premium. How much more do we pay for, for, for something that is uh, made cleanly versus something that uh, is made without any, any concern about the externalities that it causes, right? The emissions, mm -hmm. uh, environmental impacts, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I think technology is rightly going to be focused on that. Okay. How do we make steel made with hydrogen uh, as competitive as steel made with fossil fuel uh, energy? Uh, so I think that's a, that's I think that's an area to 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 really watch, right? Mm -hmm. All these all these uh, uh, startups, companies, technologies that are addressing this this green premium, mm -hmm. uh, and then I think not so much a technology, but something we've talked about, right? Is it, we're going to move to a more circular economy as well, right? Which I, I know is one of the areas that, that interests you. Mm -hmm. We're gonna get away from this, you know, take, make, waste, linear linear uh, process to a cycle of reduce, reuse, recycle, et cetera, repair. Sure, recycle. sure. So I think that's that's more of a, of a philosophical innovation but I think that's that's something that is is also going to hit us like a like a big uh, uh, wave in the future. Well, do you, well, so that's interesting. So so on that point, and um, have you spent time and again, kind of looking forward a little bit in in the recycling area? 
in the retained carbon calculations in the recycling process, right? I mean, is it sort of a zero-sum gain or is it a net positive? I mean, I'm assuming it's a net positive, but I actually don't even know. Yeah, when, when you do the, the life cycle assessment for your product, and if at the end of the life cycle, uh, the product gets reused, recycled, mm -hmm. you get mm -hmm. credits in your life cycle assessment. You get carbon credits. I see. That. Yep. Right. So, so obviously products that can be recycled or reused have, have some count, right? It's, it, it's pretty, pretty tough to do with, with some other products, but, but the majority of them can, and you do get a credit on, on the assessment. What about what about like metals though? The one thing I was thinking of because I had an interesting conversation a while ago at the CSCMP conference with a guy who uh, operated one of the handful of smelters in the United States, and he was recycling copper. Let's say right. right? Yeah. And what fascinated me, I, I, what seems obvious, is the output of that recycled copper was metallurgically this exact same as copper pulled out of the ground because it has to be the standards dictate it has to be right so there's no difference i mean from a from a from a from a qualitative point of view there's zero difference between you know, copper out of the ground versus copper that's been recycled so the question is i i never thought to think about in recycling copper you know what's how do you compare that carbon retained carbon of the recycled material versus the material i'm pulling out of the ground because it's not there's still a lot of energy to recycle copper I just don't know if it's a, you know, it's a two to one, three to one, four to one gain with recycling metal as an example versus pulling it out of the ground. Yeah. So yeah, copper is one of these uh, metals that is infinitely recyclable. Right. Right. Do it many, many, many times, and it, it, you know, it's, it's still copper doesn't lose our, its properties. And if you look at the environmental product declaration of that sort of copper, for example, it will be lower than copper that is, uh, or a copper product that is made from freshly mined freshly extracted copper right because you're you're not using you know that whole air that whole carbon budget of mining the stuff and transporting it to the to the refinery where it gets turned into 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 copper all that is out of the equation right right so so for example also uh steel made with recycled uh iron is is also lower lower uh, emissions than than virgin steel, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that in itself will also be, be driving uh, this move towards the, the circular economy, right? That's, well, absolutely, absolutely, because you know I was talking to this guy that it was fascinating because it wasn't it wasn't and here's the irony of it all it wasn't that he had a problem selling his recycled copper he didn't have enough throughput to meet the demands right. of the people that needed it. Yeah. <laughs> so I was I was I was scratching my head going well wait a minute so you're telling me you sell copper that's equivalent to what you call virgin copper. It, it is, ends up being a little bit cheaper, you know, is surely way more sustainable, but the only reason you can't sell more of it is you can't produce it fast enough. And it's, I think it's the, <laughs> Which same is crazy. The steel, it's the same in the steel industry as well, right? The, the steel made out of recycled, recycled materials is only 15, 20% of the total steel market. Right. Uh, and yeah, we which have is, to improve that. <laughs> yeah, which is like that just seems like an obvious one to me. It's like, well, how do we raise awareness around these recyclers so that people right. actually can go to them so right. we can get more guaranteed throughput, right? Because right. uh, it's about it's about flow. All right, I, I definitely would have been conscious of time because because I know no uh, coming coming up in here. So any last thoughts or or just you know I mean it's been a great conversation, but you know what what do you got going on for yourself or your consultancy or anything or just any any kind of parting thoughts on what's going on in the world of of, of sustainability retained carbon. 
Yeah, well, uh, you know, it, it, in, in, in my consultancy, Zero Emission Advisors, we, we're really, we look at actually emissions generally, we're technology agnostic. Uh, so, you know, whether you wanna take energy from, from wind or solar or hydrogen, we do have a particular expertise, some of my colleagues in, in hydrogen, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think the parting thoughts are, are one of the big uh, questions is how and where are we gonna find the right use for hydrogen? Because mm -hmm. we know it's very clean, but uh, it has some, some uh, significant disadvantages for things like mobility, uh, it has some advantages in terms of energy storage, right? But you, I don't know if you follow the, the conversation now, hydrogen is having a moment, right? But it's not clear really whether that moment is real mm -hmm. because I don't think we have yet found the right niche. And I think it will be a niche for the hydrogen. So I think this conversation about the hydrogen economy uh, uh, is a lot yet to be sort of landed. Gotcha. Well, that's a good one. No, I think I think there's uh you know we're we're definitely making some big big shifts right now. Uh, you know, God only knows what we're gonna find uh, when we start mining some of these asteroids. You know, now that they're pulling, yeah. uh, literally, uh, yeah. you know, pulling pulling materials off of these space rocks. You know, who knows what we're gonna find that's infinitely more renewable or cause more problems? Who knows? But, right. anyways, I want to thank you. It's just been a fascinating conversation. Really, just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful conversation around you know retained carbon, kind of where it's going, and you've got such an interesting view coming out of an industry that is itself transforming. Um, you know, just a lot of fun. Thank you. Great. This is Richard Donaldson. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about the episode or topics in supply chain you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at supplychainnext at requis.com. And while you're at it, why not check out the Requis platform at supplychain.requis.com. Requis allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud, collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at www.requis.com.